The following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at 1015 or check us out at DeeringChristian.org. Thanks. So he said last week was kind of heavy. Um, and it's interesting that Paul follows what he had in Titus 7 with what he has in Titus 7 this week. And if you want to turn there, we won't be there very long. But if you want to turn there, you can turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Titus 1, 7. Um, as heavy as last week was, heavier still is the consequences of a failure to manage our anger. And and the consequences of that are incredibly destructive. Becoming an approved leader, that's what we've been dealing with for 11 weeks now, all right? And we are over halfway through, but but this has been quite a journey for us. Um, Paul lays it out there very closely, and I'm telling you, we cannot, and we said this again and again, we cannot fall into the trap of thinking that this, this list of, of, of the character of what our life is supposed to look like, we can't fall in the trap of saying that's for somebody else. That's not for me. I, I'm not aspiring to be a leader within God's church, so that's not for me. No, it's for every mature man and woman in Christ. This is what we are trying to look like. And as we work our way through, we're going to go through this quickly. The very first thing we looked at weeks ago was a good reputation. All right? That is what is desired, a good reputation. Now, do not think that a hindered reputation from the past will mess you or mess me up. God is about the future much more than the past. And God is all about rebuilding things. And sometimes he has to rebuild our reputation. All right? We must understand that. We are works in progress, okay? And God understands that, so we should as well. After that, he followed it with moral purity, all right? Pure life, pure living, morally, okay? And then that was followed by living a balanced life. Um, And and, and that just boils down to this, us understanding that this world isn't our home. If we come to that understanding and live in that way, then bad stuff will not mess with us. Okay, I take that back. It'll still mess with us because we live in a rotten world sometimes. But we understand this world's not our home. We've been made, we've been created for a different home. All right? All right, prudent. Um, that, that, that is wise view of life, a wise living. And this boils down to this, a correct view of God, self, and others. Um, JB followed that next week with, with a respectable life, all right? Our words and our actions match up. We talked about that a lot in Sunday school this morning, okay? Um, hospitable is next on the list. And basically boiling that down to is this, how do we use what God has given us, specifically our homes? Do we use our homes for the kingdom of God? Do we, ever, do, we do that? Is that what, uh, part of the purpose of our home? Um, moving on from there is, is this being able to teach. And that does not mean teaching in Sunday school or, or teaching a Bible study, although those are not bad things. Those are, those are important things. They're good things. I learned a lot from Sunday school teachers in my life. All right. But specifically what that's talking about, is we know that the majority of what we learn in life doesn't come in the setting of a classroom. 
It just happens in life. So, so how are we teaching with our lives on a daily basis? Being addicted to God alone. I truly believe this, that we are born with a desire to be addicted. Okay? Being addicted is, is, I cannot live without this. We are supposed to be in a place that we cannot live without our God. And his action in our life. Being addicted to him alone, not to other things. Overcoming self-centeredness. I don't even know we need to talk about that one, all right? Because we understand that. And then we jumped into last week, managing our anger. Coming to the understanding that anger is not a sin. No, it is not, but it's dangerous. Okay? Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry and yet do not sin. All right, turn to Titus 1, 7. All right, this is what we're going to read here. And as I was talking with my wife about this last night, we have a continuing debate about which version of the Bible is best, okay? And she said, when we got to this and the word we're going to be looking at today, she said, yet another reason why you need to read a different Bible, okay? This is what it says. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. Okay, I just got a question for you. How many of you, besides me, use the word in regular conversation, pugnacious, this week? I'm not talking about a dog, and I'm not talking about a word that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles say, all right? I don't think they ever said pugnacious. Does that sound like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle word? It really, really does. All right, pugnacious. Let's dig into this just a little bit. What the word in the Greek that we get pugnacious from is this, plictes. And what it means is this, a striker. A striker. Okay? This is what Gene gets, which we've been using. And we're going to lean on him quite a bit today in his book, one of the better books out there, in my opinion, when it comes to living as a man of God, um, the, the measure of a man. This is what he says about this word. He said, on the anger continuum, This word can describe a person who's bullying others all the way to a person who's committing murder. Pugnacious. What we're going to do, we're going to do this very quickly this week, folks. We had a a heavy week last week, and we're going to move quickly this week, all right? Especially since we're dealing with some similar subject matter. And what we're going to take a look at is two men from the Old Testament who did a horrible job of trying to control their anger. Matter of fact, both of them were overcome by their anger. And the first one we're going to look at, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 4, if you want to turn there. Genesis 4. This started very early. All right? Very early. Let's set this up just a little bit. Yeah, Genesis, that Genesis, the very beginning, okay? And we're not only talking about the beginning book, we're talking about the beginning of the beginning book, okay? And what you have is this. A man named Adam and a woman named Eve. We know their story. They lived in paradise and they messed it up. Okay? And they had to leave paradise. And yet, God, from the very beginning, was already working out ways to redeem Adam and Eve and their children. Which I'm glad for because we're all the children of Adam and Eve. Their very first child, though, was a guy named Cain. 
All right. Now, God is still very much a part of this relationship in a very verbal and way. I mean, we get a conversation that takes place between God. Now, we're not talking about a vision or anything here. We're talking about a conversation that takes place between Cain and God. We call Adam and Eve their failure. We, we call we have a name for it. We call it the fall. All right. The fall from grace. The fall into sin. All right. And God said, you will go to a place where life is now going to be difficult. And bad things are going to happen in that life. And I don't think Adam and Eve, when they were told that by God, even fathomed what was going to happen. And happened quite early. Cain shows up. He's the first son of Adam and Eve. Matter of fact, the name Cain means this, having received. That's what the name means. And Eve gave, Adam and Eve, Eve specifically, gave them that name because they received this great gift from God. The son name that they named Cain. Now, Cain had a younger brother. His name was Abel. And we don't get much about them growing up, but they do grow up. And we don't know exactly how old they were. I'm assuming they were somewhat young men. And what you have is Cain. Cain was a, he was a crop farmer. Okay, that's what he was. He was a produce guy um, and he was a crop guy. All right. And then you got Abel. Abel was a ranch man. All right. He was a shepherd. He kept flocks. That's what he did. And it came time to offer sacrifice to God. You see, sacrifice was a very early thing. And it came time to offer sacrifice. And Abel came and offered sacrifice, and Cain did the same thing. There was a difference between their sacrifices, though. Now, one was a blood sacrifice because, because Abel offered from his flocks, and Cain offered from the fields. All right? But, but that, that, wasn't the, that wasn't the important difference. The important difference was this. Abel's sacrifice was of his best. He took the best of what he had, and he offered it to God. Cain did not do this. He did not offer God his best. And we're told in the first part of Genesis chapter 4 that God had regard for Abel's sacrifice. God, sounds kind of strange, but God was, he recognized it. He was thankful for it. But it says he did not have regard for Cain's sacrifice. And this is not only that. This is what God says to Cain. Because Cain has something that comes along that I'm sure nobody in this room, none of us ever battle with. Jealousy. An envious nature. Tells us that Cain's Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then we look to verses 6 and 7. Genesis 4. Still just, just imagine this just for a second. Don't let this pass by your, the thought in your mind. God's having a conversation with him. Okay. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? I mean, God's just telling him, do a better job, Cain. 
It's all good. It's okay. You've got another opportunity. And when the next opportunity and the time comes to offer sacrifice, do a better job. And I think God's talking about more than a simple sacrifice. I'm thinking he's talking about life here, lifestyle. God said, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain gets jealous. By the way, jealousy is a regular precursor to anger. And you know what happens next. Cain murdered his brother, Abel. God's advice was very simple. He said, just do a better job, Cain. Just do a better job. It's all going to be all right. Do a better job. And do not be mastered by your anger. But Cain was mastered by his anger. And Abel was murdered. And folks, I'm sorry, there's no happy ending there. There's none. Okay, let's follow that tale of joy with another tale of joy. We're going to talk this time about Saul. All right, now we're not, we're not going to talk about, about the Apostle Paul, whose was first name Saul. We're talking about him a little bit later. Now we're talking about King Saul, the first king of the nation of Israel. And I'm going to be talking to you out of the account of 1 Samuel. All right, we're not going to specifically look at any of that. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase a really big story here for you very quickly, okay? Um, Saul has messed up. Quite royally, okay? Um, basically, this. God told him very specific instructions. He was a king. He was not only a king, he was a general of his army as well. He was a good one. He was a good one. And yet, he did not follow God's instructions. God said, okay, you, you are going to battle. You, the battle's already won. I mean, of course, he's a good general. I mean, he's already been told by the master of everything that the battle's already won before they drew a sword. I mean, that's just wow. Okay. He said, specifically, I want you to do this, this, and this. I'm giving you the battle. I need you to do this, this, and this. Long story short. King Saul did this and this, but he didn't do this. And if you want all the details, read Genesis, or Genesis read 1 Samuel 15, all right? God doesn't speak specifically here with Saul in this way. Lots happened since Cain and Abel and King Saul, all right? He speaks through a prophet named Samuel. And Samuel is, is not only a prophet, he's also a very good friend of King Saul. He's the one who anointed him to be king. He, he, he loved Saul like a son. Okay? It's Samuel's job to show up, talk to Saul, and say, you messed up. You did not follow very specific instructions, and there are consequences for that. And because of that, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to someone who's more worthy than you. 
King Saul goes into all kinds of excuses, all these different things. He does not repent, okay? He just, he just cries, basically, to Samuel. Saying, please, please, go to God. Make this right. And Samuel says, you don't understand, Saul. I cannot make it right. You messed up. And there are consequences for that. 1 Samuel 15 is a tough read. You know how it ends? The very last verse says this. Samuel and Saul, remember, kind of like father-son type situation here. It says, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. If you know some Old Testament history, you know what happens next. A guy by the name of David shows up. Youngest of a whole bunch of sons. He's a shepherd. Man, he hits the ground running. It's David and Goliath. All right? And after David kills Goliath, he's, he's adopted into Saul's army and kind of adopted into his family as well. And everything's going great. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a while later, but David has worked his way up to, to one of the main leaders in Saul's army. And, and everything that he does just prosper. I mean, this guy is a powerful warrior. We're told that he's a man after God's own heart. Now, he wasn't perfect. All right, we can talk about a guy who messed up. We can talk about David, okay? But he was a man who knew what repentance was about. And he was a man who was willing to say when he messed up. And he's willing to follow the lead of God. And for that reason, God was going to give the kingdom to him. Now, David, or Saul, he, um, he can kind of see the handwriting on the wall a little bit. He kind of knows what's happening here. He sees the immense popularity of David. Everybody loves this David guy. And then on top of it, he's listening. The ladies, oh, the ladies like David. David liked the ladies. Got him in trouble a lot in his life, all right? And it was after one particular victory, David's coming back with the army, and they're singing out. In, in, the, in the city, they're singing out saying, and this is what their song says, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his tens of thousands. I can tell you something right now. God would take the kingdom from Saul and give it over to David. That's going to happen. But the story could have been so much different. You see, David... And Saul's son, Jonathan, were best friends. They were both powerful warriors. And I'm telling you, read between the lines. Jonathan's love was so great for David, he would have willingly handed over the kingdom to his best friend. Because Jonathan was not a man like his father, Saul. He was a good man. But we know that's not what happens. Once again, jealousy proceeds out of control anger. And at one point in time, Saul hurls a spear at the most powerful warrior in his army. David hurls a spear, tries a pinning to the wall with a spear. See, David's also a musician and he's playing a harp for Saul. All right. And, and Saul rage gets the best of him and he throws a spear, tries to pin him against the wall. David escapes. It's not too long later that Saul does the exact same thing, throws a spear, not at David, but at his own son, Jonathan. 
Does this guy sound rational here? Years later, Saul would die on the battlefield at the hands of the Philistines. The same Philistines he would have completely and utterly subdued with the help of David. But he hated David. Saul would die a miserable and bitter man because he was mastered by his anger. When it comes to anger completely out of control, the scariest part about it is we're all susceptible. Every last one of us. I want to read something from you. Are for you from Gene Guess. It's a measure measure of a man. Um, there's been a couple of the ladies in the church who've gotten a book, The Measure of a Woman, and I'm I'm anxiously awaiting the reviews, ladies. Okay, all right. So better read them. All right, and what we have here, guys, is this: we have the king. Well, I'm just going to read it for you. Okay. It's called the Eichmann and all of us. This is relative to what happened in Nazi Germany. Germany, And the late Chuck Colson recounted what he'd seen on television 60 Minutes. It's a tough read, folks. All right. Not just emotionally, but also because there's some big names in here that are tough to say. So bear with me. Introducing a recent story about Nazi Adolf Eichmann, a principal architect of the Holocaust, Wallace posed a central question at the program's outset. How is it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was he a monster? A madman? Or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he Normal. Normal. The executioner of millions of Jews, normal. Most self-respecting viewers would have been outraged at the very thought. The most startling answer to Wallace's shocking question came in an interview with Yehiel. I was going to try so hard to get this spit out, and I just cannot do it, all right? We're just going to say his last name. Dinur. I've got to say his first name too. Just bear with me. Yale Dinur. A concentration camp survivor who testified against Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. I've got a question for you. How many of you remember those trials? Nobody remembers the Nuremberg trials, 1961? Okay, all right. Okay, listen up. A film clip from Eichmann's 1961 trial showed Diner walking into the courtroom. That's, that's the survivor, the Holocaust survivor here, okay? Stopping short and seeing Eichmann for the first time since the Nazis had sent him, Diner to Auschwitz 18 years earlier. Diner began to sob uncontrollably and then fainted, collapsing in a heap on the floor as the presiding judicial officer pounded his order into the crowded courtroom. 
Some of you might remember this. Was Dunur overcome by hatred, fear, horrid memories? No, it was none of these. Rather, as Dunur explained to Wallace, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike officer who had sent so many to their death. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, said Dunur. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Wallace's subsequent summation of Dunur's terrible discovery. Eichmann is in all of us. This is a horrifying statement, but indeed captures a central truth about man's nature. For as a result of the fall, sin is in each of us, not just the susceptibility to sin, but sin itself. There's not very many around anymore who can remember from personal experience the shock and the horror at finding out what took place in Nazi Germany. And yet, many, many citizens of that nation stood by and watched. Those people were not monsters. Those people were people. And that incredibly tragic piece, part of our history should remind us that we're capable of horrid, horrible things because of the natural part of us. So what do we do about it? How do we get practical about this? We talked last week about taking a time out when we're angry. We talk, we're not going to talk about that more. We'll talk. pray for objectivity. Here's a question for you. We didn't talk about this last week. Here's a question. Do you have an escape? I'm serious about this. Because life can get kind of tough. And life can get pretty stressful. And life can make us angry sometimes. Here's your question. Do you have an escape? Do you have something that you can escape that anger from? And I'm not getting all spiritual here. I'm not talking about God. Obviously, God is, is a great escape because he's beyond his control. He's so far above this world. And we're living in this world as aliens and strangers. But I'm not talking spiritually speaking here. I'm talking just practically day-to-day experience here. Do you have an escape? Precious time with your family. Folks, that's therapeutic. How many of you just get away with your family sometimes? Say, I'm just, we're just gone for a while. For our family, we've got places we like to go. Colorado's one of them. That's an escape. I'm just going to tell you right now. What's, what's your escape? hobby 
something you can do and just do you guys remember i've talked about it before do, do you do you remember that old nike commercial the one where the gal's out there playing tennis do you remember that one and the tennis balls are flying at her out of the, the machine, and she smacks it, and it goes into slow-mo. And it's, it's, it's like behind the racket, and every time the tennis ball hits the racket, it's the face of somebody. It's like her boss saying, you did horrible today. Pow! She smacks it, all right? Pow! And she hits it out. Okay. I'm just asking, do you have an escape? Maybe, maybe a hobby that you can escape to. More specifically, do you have a hobby where you can experience the presence of God? Maybe for you it's on a golf course. And you're like, no, it just makes me more angry. Okay, you're probably not doing golf for the right reasons then, all right? Seriously, do you have a hobby you can escape to, if just for a while, where you can be in God's presence, enjoying yourself, and just quieting your soul for a while? Practical, guys, if, if you know you have a problem with anger and you fear losing control, get We will help you find and we will pay for, if necessary, good, solid Christian counseling. Remember, anger's not sinful. It's not. God gets angry. And God doesn't sin. But it can lead to sin if it's not properly handled. Paul knew this personally. Have you ever read between the lines in Paul's writing? What was Paul before he became Paul? He was a man named Saul. Now, not King Saul. This is a different Saul, all right? This man was so angry. Now, he would have called it righteous anger at this point in his life. Later in his life, he would be incredibly, incredibly humiliated and humbled by his past. But at the time, he was righteously angry these new christian people these people following this 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 occult thing this this jesus thing he's going he's doing everything in his power to wipe it off the face of the earth even if that meant people dying he was an angry man jesus showed up changed everything changed everything but you know what you, you look through the story in Acts, and you look at some of the way Paul reacts to people, and I think Paul had a temper. <laughs> Paul and Barnabas, man, they were like the dream team, all right? Paul was the guy that would come. He was like the tough cop, all right? That's what he was. And then you got Barnabas. He was the son of encouragement, okay? And talk about a tandem. These guys were powerful. They were missionaries. They worked together. Guess what? They only went on one missionary journey together. The next one rolled along. They weren't together. You know why? So they got mad at each other. And it was Paul. Reading and looking closely, it was Paul who had more of the problem because, because Barnabas, the son of encouragement, wanted to take a guy named Mark, by the way, the writer of the second book of the New Testament, wanted to take that guy with him on the journey. And Paul said, no, he abandoned us last time. He went home crying to mama. We're not taking him. We're done. And Barnabas said, don't you understand? He learned from that. 
He is valuable. I want him with us. Paul said, nope. No three strikes are out with me. You're done. He's done. And Paul and Barnabas split ways. Later on, Paul would he'd make things right. Why did Paul put this two times in this list? Because I think it's something Paul dealt with sometimes. Anger is not sinful. But it's dangerous. If not handled properly. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for the words of your servant, Paul. We thank you for what he puts on paper so many years ago, Lord, that still has its effect in our lives. We pray, Lord, that uh, if anger is, is something that we battle, and there's nobody in this room who doesn't battle it sometimes, help us put it into your hands. Lord, if we need help with that, help us to be humble enough to to say we need help with it. Lord, good things can come about from a spirit of righteous anger. We live in a world, Lord, that doesn't like you too much. Sometimes we get angry. Help it not to motivate us to sin, but help us to motivate us to be better. And to love more. And to serve more. We know we can only do this, Lord, with the power of your Holy Spirit. And with the strength of your Spirit. Help us to live by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name.